Hello and welcome to I Thinker, where international affairs are discussed. I'm Martin Zubko. Today we're going to speak about the EU counterterrorism legal framework. And the reason is that when I face international students, especially, they ask many questions about how the EU counter terrorism, how the EU fights the terrorism, which is one dimension. But the second dimension is where to find information if the EU is so complex. There are many institutions, many documents, regulations and directives. So therefore, I think this is the educational episode that I would like to develop to clarify those things about the EU and to make it easier for especially international students to understand the EU counterterrorism legal framework. To do so, I invited my expert today, and that's Professor Christian Kalnert. Hello, Christian. Hello, good afternoon. Professor Christian Kalnert is a professor of International Security School of Law and Government, Dublin City University, professor of policy and security at University of South Wales, a director of International Center for Policy and Security, and also Jean Monnet, director. Christian is also an editor of Journal of European and American Intelligence Studies, executive editor of European Politics and Society Journal, and other important positions and functions that he is providing for the academia and especially for the security studies. Through his career, Professor Kalnert has contributed significantly to the field of international security with particular interest in the European Union's role in this area. And I will provide the list of publications and articles in the YouTube description so you can go on and you can read it. So let's start with the first question. And, and I found this question very basic. But unfortunately, I found that 70% of students can't answer that question. And that's how does the EU define terrorism? Where to find this definition? And also, is the EU definition of terrorism unique or, or any different from other definitions? For instance, United States, United Kingdom. Right. Well, that I think it's a very important question. And, you know, the reason why I think it's a very important question is that the EU is, in fact, the only international organization in the entire world that has defined terrorism. The United Nations will have UN Security Council decisions on it, but they don't have a legal definition of what it means to, to be talking about terrorism at the UN level. The same for NATO, the same for any other international organizations. The EU is, in fact, the only organization that has a definition. So before we start going into the EU's definition, let me just go into definitions on terrorism in general, because the term terrorism is a concept which is contested. It's a contested concept in international politics. It's been sometimes been abused for purpose of political guilt, attribution, and various international viewpoints currently coexist. Scholars of all disciplines have studied political violence. They generally accept terrorism as a unique form of political violence. It's not a philosophy like Marxism or political movement like anarchism, but it's a systematic use of violence and intimidation in order to achieve political aims. Now, if we go into a variety of definitions that exist out there, there's a couple of legal definitions that exist out there, you will see 
that they differ in some aspects and and you can relate that back to in a sense what it is to 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 view uh, terrorism as a political from a political perspective so for instance the fbi gives a definition of terrorism as the unlawful use of force or violence against a person or property to intimidate or coerce a government the civilian population or any segment thereof in furtherance of political or social objectives so it's a relatively clear definition in the sense that it is about either the use or the force uh, use of force uh, and violence or the threatening the use of violence uh, either against people or against property so if if you're uh, threatening to blow up a house that would be seen as terrorism as well under this definition um but it has to have a political purpose it's not just you know a chaotic way of creating violence it has to have a political purpose and that political purpose is either to intimidate or to curse either government or civilian population or any element thereof so that is the the definition that the fbi takes relatively clear but obviously people might uh, have different views on it. the u.s department of defense for instance says it's a calculated use of violence or the threat of violence to inculcate fear. Again, same aspect in terms of violence or threat of violence in order to achieve fear intended to coerce or intimidate governments or societies as to the pursuit of goals that are generally political, religious or ideological. So they define the goals to be either political, religious or ideological. Now you can argue whether a religious goal is not also a political goal and whether an ideological goal is not also a political goal. I, I would probably quibble with that, but certainly it's a similar kind of definition that also the FBI has in terms of how they would define it. Now, if you look at the UK government, you see that the UK government says it's the use or threat for that purpose of advancing a political, religious or ideological cause or action which involves serious violence against person or property. It's relatively similar. Again, it's use or threat um, can be political, religious, ideological and it involves serious violence against any person or property. Now, the European Union does not have a clear legal definition like I just presented to you. I think I wanted to present you those other ones first, because um, otherwise it would have looked like the EU uh, is unable to come up with a clear definition. But actually, that's not the case. The EU's definition is the only definition that there is at the international level. So it is the clearest definition that it currently exists at the international level. But of course, there's different international viewpoints on the question. So the EU's definition here is much more descriptive. It's not um, as definitional in the legal criminal justice sense of the word, but it's more descriptive of the actions that the EU considers to be of a terrorist nature. So the EU says it's an intentional act, infringement linked to terrorist activities. Now, a lawyer might criticize that that sounds slightly circular because it mentions terrorist activities when it defines terrorism. But the reason for that is because it criminalizes each individual act that also uh, in, uh, exists here. It covers behaviors that may contribute to terrorist acts in third countries. So that is not only on the territory of the EU, but also behaviors that might be in a third country outside of the territory of the EU. It then approximates that level of sanctions between different member states. So the effect of that legal definition is that it thereby makes it into the criminal code 
of all EU member states. Now, that's another important thing to remember. When the EU adopted this legal definition, at the time, only five of the current 27 slash 28 member states, uh, when the UK was still part of, uh, of the EU, actually had a legal definition at all in terms of terrorism. Only a small minority of member states even had a legal definition in their own criminal code. Now, all of them have a legal, because what it does is it's it's approximating all those criminal sanctions across all EU member states. And I think that's another aspect of the value for having this. It then goes further. It's a significant scope. Member states are competent for terrorist acts that take place on their own territory or that have been committed against their own people, not necessarily their own territory, but let's say um, uh, French people abroad, Germans abroad, Czechs abroad, whatever you might want to see. That is also covered by the EU's legal definition. So that's kind of my my uh, long-winded way of presenting a definition, but uh, also making the viewers understand why it's important, even though it is a long-winded definition. I have two follow-up questions, Christian. Mm-hmm. The, the first one is, is what, what is the legal document where to find this definition, the words that you basically mm-hmm. presented? And the second one, as a, as a scholar, do you prefer when the definition is more general or do you prefer when it's more specific? Yeah. So in terms of the documents, you go into the council and you find it as a council decision in, in terms of the council documents. Um, in terms of the definition, now, a legally elegant definition, this is not. It isn't a legally ele- elegant definition. So what I presented to you about uh, the FBI or the UK government is much more elegant in a, in a legal sense. But this was achieving this um while at the same time there were you have to remember this is just after 9-11 that the eu adopts this definition and there are still significant differences in terms of threat perception amongst eu member states some of uh, some of the current member states were not even member states back then um there's significant differences in terms of viewpoints in terms of what are terrorist groups um Sometimes seeing some terrorist groups as terrorist groups, other countries seeing them maybe as political movement. I mean, there have been historic, really strong disagreements, like just uh, remember the historical case of the different views about ETA between France and Spain. You know, there were very serious differences in terms of, uh, on the one hand, seeing them as a freedom fighter group against Francoist uh, far-right Spain, and the other side, seeing them as terrorists that want to undermine the, the the nature of the subsequent democratic uh, Spanish state. So there were significant differences. And the EU's definition, what it does is it kind of circumvents the political debate about is this group a terrorist group or not, but it defines the activities as terrorist activities. And by doing that, you're able to get beyond the political discussion. And is this definition uh, widely accepted by the EU members or is there a discussion which is basically taking the parts of the EU definition to the national code or the national criminal code? How how does this process work or or has it been completed already? So so there is basically no discussion because everything is clear. Well, by now it has been completed. Mm -hmm. By now it's something that happens at at all of the national levels. But... 
at the beginning, of course, it was something that, you know, uh, member states had to first agree with and, and so on. And they had to then implement in their own national legislation. So, I mean, all of that had to be adopted. Some member states may have even had to change their own constitution to, to bring it. Depends how a member state and the criminal justice system is organized. So this uh, varies uh, between the different uh, jurisdictions. So they said, so they did that at the time. There was, of course, a lot of discussion. But because of the very significant events that we had at the time, this was after 9-11, and, and of course, there was the war on terror, the kind of feeling that we really have to fight Al-Qaeda, we have to fight uh, Islamist terrorism. Because of that, um, overall, there was actually a kind of a process you might I mean, in some of the work, we've called it a collective securitization of EU counterterrorism, you know, a collective securitization of terrorism as part of the security infrastructure of the European Union, where collectively over time, this was perceived as a security threat, not only against an individual state, but a security threat against the whole of the EU as a collectivity. So I think that's when it became really important. So we have a definition explained already, and now let's move to the second easy question, and that's what are the key legal instruments that basically come from the definition and allow the EU to counter the terrorism? Yes. So in terms of key legal instruments, there is a couple, and I'll, I'll go through some of the most important ones. But what's important to understand in terms of why is it important to criminalize terrorism isn't actually so much the framework of the European Union, because the framework of the European Union provides very useful tools to fight terrorism, but it doesn't immediately spring from that definition. What that definition rather does is being able to criminalize certain activities that don't naturally fall under the criminal code. And I give you examples for this. Normally, before a state or before the EU criminalizes terrorism in a criminal code, obviously some acts that are part of the definition of terrorism were already criminal activities, right? So if you kill somebody, that's already a criminal offense. It's 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 called murder. If you uh, harm somebody, there's a criminal offense there as well. It's grievous bodily harm. It's, it's, it's a variety of different possible crimes. If you damage property, there's also a, a criminal offense that is attached to that. So the value of having a definition is not necessarily to define or redefine something that is already a criminal offense. Rather, the idea of how we're going to fight security threats, right? When it comes to terrorism, we don't want to convict a terrorist after the fact, right? We don't want to have a huge terror attack where several thousand people are killed, like in 9-11, and then prosecute them afterwards when people are already dead. What we want is to be able to stop a terror attack before it actually happens, before those people are killed, to stop it before um, any of those uh, kind of... Um, part of the activities are already conducted. So that's what we are trying to do in terms of counterterrorism. And that's why you need a definition of terrorism, because with the pre-existing criminal justice framework, you are unable to do that. So I'll give you an example. If you wanted to 
um, prosecute somebody for planning to build a bomb. You know, none of the activities involved in planning to build a bomb were part of your criminal code. Getting the material, very often there were harmless materials, they were not under, uh, they were not under a criminal code. Getting a recipe in terms of how to build a bomb, getting a kind of a framework for how to put it together, getting money in order to buy those ingredients, none of those things were criminal offenses prior to defining terrorism as a crime. All of them by themselves and individually could not be criminally prosecuted. Um, once you define terrorism as a crime, with the objective of obviously to stop those terror attacks, then you can start prosecuting those individual smaller aspects of uh, what ultimately becomes a terror plot, and you can prosecute for each one of them. And therefore, you stop the attack before it happens. And I think that's the, the, the real value in having the, uh, the terrorism as a criminal um, as a criminal offense in your criminal code, because you're able to actually then use the criminal tools to prevent a terror attack, rather than having to prosecute after the attack has taken place. Now, the EU's legal instruments, they're not necessarily about that. So the EU's legal instruments are not necessarily so much about prosecuting somebody because they've started to buy some ingredients for building a bomb and because of maybe watched some videos that are radicalizing in nature. Although some of the instruments can be used for that also. But the the, the key um, uh, the key instruments really that the EU has is I give you an example and that is for instance the European arrest warrant. The European arrest warrant was really the key instrument that the EU adopted after 9-11. And that relates back to an old debate in counterterrorism circles, the debate about extraditing terrorists after they've been arrested. Now, in Europe, we've had those kind of discussions for many, many years, in fact. Let me give you just a little outline. You know, we had various terror groups in Europe. We had the IRA in Northern Ireland and Great Britain. We had ethno-nationalist terrorism in Spain with the ETA. We had radical left-wing terrorism in Italy, in Germany. So there's always been a kind of a common European experience, a variety of different forms of terrorism. We also had non-European terrorism on European soil, the PLO, um, of course, like the Munich attack, the PKK, the Turkish, uh, the Kurdish organization that is primarily obviously based in Turkey, but that was also conducting operations on European soil. So all of those kind of existed. And Europe initially developed its framework as outside of the framework of the European Union, actually, because those kind of issues during those days, they were not really part of the European framework. They were part and parcel of other kind of frameworks. So for instance, the Council of Europe, Council of Europe and international organization of a um, of a voluntary nature, if you like, with no supranational characteristics, relatively weak instruments and so on, it already had instruments of a similar nature that the European Union then developed after 9-11. So for instance, the Council for Europe had a convention on extradition, first of 1957, then of 1975, 1978. Also had other instruments here in the Council of Europe, like the Mutual Legal Assistance in Criminal Matters, 1959-1978, Convention on the International Validity of Criminal Judgments in 1970, or the European Convention on the Suppression of Terrorism in 1977. Now, why 
then do you need the European Union to get involved, right? We have this other organization, why do you need the European Union to get involved? Now, when it comes to those instruments that were there outside of the framework of the European Union, they were not really the strongest of instruments. I give you an example here with the Convention of Extradition. The Convention of Extradition was um, signed in 1957, right? 1957 already. So this is just a couple of years after the Second World War, this convention is signed. Now, in the United Kingdom, this particular convention was not ratified until the year 1991. So that's the year the Soviet Union fell apart. So until 1991, this particular convention was not operational for the purpose of extraditing a terrorist either from the United Kingdom to other European countries or to the United Kingdom from European countries. This convention was therefore basically useless because it was there only on paper. It could not be used by the government of the United Kingdom or by any of the judges. In that framework, we also had other problems. Um, in the 1970s, for instance, we had all the ETA terrorists, for instance, that were fleeing Franco-Spain were fleeing primarily into, in, into France, uh, in the southern coast of, of, of France, used them as a hinterland sometimes to, to even plan the terror attacks, but France wouldn't extradite them. Why? Because France didn't see them as terrorists. France saw them as freedom fighters against the far-right regime. So they wouldn't, even after the fall of the Franco regime, it took several years for, for the French and the, and the Spanish to start cooperating a little bit better. So extradition was always, always a very touchy thing. I'm, I'm saying this because one of the big things that you did was to solve that one issue, particularly the extradition issue, and that is the European arrest warrant. The European arrest warrant, you may say, is really the key instrument of how this extradition puzzle was solved after 9-11. Because... Extradition, the way it used to happen, was that basically it was a diplomatic process. A diplomatic process that went from Judge A in Country A to Foreign Ministry in that Country A. The Foreign Ministry of that Country A would then contact the Foreign Ministry in Country B. The Foreign Ministry in Country B would then contact Judge in, judge in Country B. Judge B would then uh, maybe hand over the terror suspect to foreign ministry in country B, perhaps. Or Judge B might say, look, you know, I don't trust country A. They have a terrible criminal justice system. They don't respect human rights. Therefore, because I don't trust them, I don't hand them over. Or he say, okay, we'll hand them over. Now, if country B happened to be Italy, that process might well be taking something like 10 or 12 years, you know, because that's usually almost the length that it used to take for criminal trials to to happen in, in in Italy. So after 10 or 12 years, that judge might have then said, okay, you can do something, foreign ministry. But then the foreign ministry, let's say if that was France, might have said, look, but we don't think this is a terrorist, you know? So we're not actually going to hand them over. So we had an enormous blockage. So those terror suspects were not handed over. They were not actually, even though we had them, even though they may have even been briefly arrested, they were not handed over. Now, the European arrest warrant cuts the entire system out. The European arrest warrant cuts out the entire diplomatic aspect of that system and basically makes it an administrative um, procedure, an administrative procedure where Judge A in country A requests 
the terrorist suspect to be handed over from Judge B by issuing a European arrest warrant. A European arrest warrant is in fact an instrument that um, is uh, implemented. Yeah, it is. Um, it abolishes, for instance, the so-called dual criminality principle. Dual criminality meant in order for a suspect to be handed over, it had to be a crime in the criminal code in both country A and country B. Yeah? Now, that is ended with, with the European arrest warrant. There's no more requirement that it has to be a crime in both countries. It only has to be a crime in the country where the crime was committed. So only in country A does it actually have to be a crime. And this is so for a category of 32 different crimes. Um, so you cannot refuse to extradite on judicial grounds anymore. You have the mutual recognition of those criminal ju uh, judgments, and you use the framework decision, so that needs to be implemented in national legislature uh, as to the specifics, but not with regards to the effect to be achieved, meaning that it could already be used before it was even fully implemented in national legislation. So that was a very, very significant, uh, uh, and it didn't need to be ratified. And that's the main thing, because it was a different legal instrument than what you have in a Council for Europe, which was an international convention that had to be ratified in all of the countries in order to enter into effect. That is not necessary. It wasn't necessary to be ratified by any of the countries. Yes, they needed to implement it, but even that wasn't necessary in, in, in relation to the effect to be achieved, which meant that a decision, and I give you a concrete example, a decision, for instance, like the failed 21st of July bombers in London. You know, you had first the, 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 the terror attack 7-7 in London, and then you had the failed ones 21st of July afterwards. Now, they fled immediately, relatively quickly after the attack to Italy. Now, in, in prior times, what would have happened is probably a 12-year judicial process in Italy, which may or may not have concluded that they needed to be handed over to Britain. Um, now, in this particular case, we're talking about a matter of weeks that the suspect were actually handed over. So this is the huge difference that this particular instrument made. It made something that used to take 12 years potentially, or maybe never, and cut that down to a matter of a couple of weeks where people would then be handed over what the instrument calls surrendered, no longer extradited, but surrendered to the authorities of the other state. So this is what I would say the key instrument. There's something similar that the EU then developed, which is called the European Evidence Warrant. Now, why do you need an evidence warrant? Because it basically works the same like the arrest warrant, only that this is not about the suspect, but about the evidence that needs to be presented in a criminal trial. Now, why? Because terror plots might happen in different criminal uh, jurisdictions. So there may be evidence scattered around different jurisdictions. If you don't have an instrument that collects the evidence and hands it over to the jurisdiction that actually conducts the criminal trial, um, you may not actually convict the terrorist suspects. That's why where the evidence warrant was 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 really really helpful. So basically, you have the, the instrument that hands over the terrorist suspects, and you have the instrument that hands over the criminal evidence for trial, going hand in hand, and ultimately then convicting um, the terrorist. Absolutely. And and from my perspective, uh, terrorism is, is very often a matter of more countries, uh, of multiple jurisdictions. So I remember cases when the Spain, Italy, 
France, Germany, they got together to counter the terrorist suspect. And you need evidence from all four countries. You you can't have evidence only from one country. So this is this is very significant that, that Europeans, uh, they thought about this. So they didn't finish with the warrant, but they continued to the evidence. So that, that's quite significant. The another area I want to ask uh, Christian is is the is the money, and and you know when you follow the money, usually you got very interesting information and leads uh, to suspects or to potential activities related to terrorism. So how does the EU uh, track the money related to terrorism? Yes, I think there's a couple of things here to to think about when it comes to the money. Um. Some of the things that are related to the money are related to some UN Security Council decisions, some of them notably immediately after 9-11, where certain funds were directly frozen. So, for instance, the United uh, the UN Security Council froze the funds of, uh, uh, of Al-Qaeda, bin Laden, the Taliban, and so on. And all UN member states had now the obligation to make sure that they couldn't reach their funds, right? Um, a relatively simple process, you might think. Not quite as simple in practice, because of course, um, even though there is this legal obligation for UN member states to actually do so, what happens concretely is that, of course, those individuals in national jurisdiction, imagine that this is an EU citizen, they have certain rights in the legal system. You can't easily just freeze their their money just like that there's a, there's a certain legal process in the eu in order to be able to do that so what they did initially was a twin implementation of those obligations from the united nations a twin obligation firstly with what concerns the elements of the single market those were then introduced into the eu legal framework via regulations so the EU introduced various regulations in order to um, make it possible to freeze uh, those assets of certain individuals um, in the European banks. They then also implemented them as uh, foreign policy decisions and foreign policy decisions at the level of the Council. So the Council then took several further decisions to also implement those um, UN Security Council decisions at the EU level, but with regards to foreign policy, that is the single market dimension and there's the foreign policy dimension that the EU both implemented, one via the single market, one via the Council and foreign security policy. Now, this was challenged in the court several times. Like we have a famous case that is called Gadi, and that went through several iterations in court where then the court said, but you know, you can't just take. Um, basically the UN as the gospel, you know, the UN is not, if you like, a democratic organization that has even legal jurisdiction, right? The UN is essentially an organization of an international nature that is there to facilitate cooperation amongst its member states to preserve peace and security within the member states and all of those things. But what the UN doesn't have is a legal legal body. The EU, it doesn't have a legislation. It doesn't have a judicial system. None of those things. So when you then just take the decision from the United Nations, you can't just say, okay, we're just going to implement it one-to-one one -one because it, it never underwent a kind of democratic process like what we would expect in, in a European country. Um, 
So that was then challenged and said, well, the EU has to implement its own procedures that, in a sense, scrutinize where people also have a right to appeal, for instance, where they can be taken away, where they can be taken off the list again, and, and, and all those kind of things. So in the end, in a lot of back and forth, let's say, um, they managed to to agree on a system that was ultimately then accepted by the European courts, where the EU is implementing its own legal obligations to make sure that they can actually uh, freeze the assets. Now, this is one dimension that I've talked to you about. But then there's the dimension, obviously, in terms of investigations. So the EU has many different instruments when it comes to uh, investigation orders, when it comes to banking. Very often, it has raised also banking standards, right? The obligations on banks to kind of make sure that money is not coming from uh, nefarious uh, sources, right? Um, so it has introduced a lot of different standards in terms of its own single market, in terms of making its banking safer, introducing obligations on those banks also to, to in a sense, respect and, and make sure that they are looking for the money. But of course, they also have instruments in terms of investigations, then they also have agencies. So the European Union, for instance, has a variety of different agencies. There's uh, Europol, for instance, that is there to do joint investigations with national member authorities, for instance. You have OLAF that is meant to investigate fraud against the EU budget. You have a variety of different agencies that are also very, very useful in terms of looking at the various nefarious ways in which money can ultimately potentially also fund um, uh, terrorist activities. And also is a, is a very big change because I remember articles and some documentaries when, you know, I was reading about people coming with two suitcases in cash, deposit them to the bank, and basically nobody asked any questions because, you know, it's your money, it's your suitcase. But but these times are, are gone. And now I think the tracking of the origin of the money is is uh, emerging as a, one of the very interesting discipline in researching uh, terrorism and finance as a as a topic. Uh, Christian, you already mentioned the Council of Europe, and when I teach about terrorism and and the legislation, one of the problematic area for me is that students, especially international students, they have two English terminologies: the Council of Europe and the European Council. And for many of them, it sounds like the same institution. But the Council of Europe was established or founded in 1949, while the European Council is a completely different institution. And as you mentioned, the Council of Europe uh, has or, or produced the conventions, the, the documents, the strategies for countering the terrorism. And the, the European Council also has the directives and regulations for countering terrorism. And students ask, so what's the point of having two sort of similar or almost identical uh, institutions producing almost identical documents or documents that are very similar with the main goals to counter the terrorism? Yes, I think it's a it's an interesting question. Um, part of it is a historical explanation that the Council of Europe was an organization that was basically founded with that particular name well before they knew that they were ever going to create another institution, which is also called Council, that was part of the European community, as it was called then. So this is already 
several years, in fact, before then. This is in 1949 that they established this organization in Strasbourg. Now, why do you need two organizations? Now, the Council of Europe is a different beast, you know? In, in essence, what you're comparing is, you know, a, a criminal justice system that you could possibly um, call, in some ways, the, the, the European Union system, and the kind of system of, you know, the National Football Association, which you could call in some ways the, the, the Council of Europe, in the sense that it is an, a system of voluntary cooperation. It's not a system of mandatory compliance. It's a system of voluntary cooperation that does not have, indeed, they're writing very good documents, like you were just saying. They had this convention on the extradition of 1957 and various other very, very good documents, very good legal texts, very useful later for the European Union to take up, but ultimately without teeth. None of those conventions could be fully implemented. None of them could really be used in a very, very strong way, only in cases that didn't really matter very much. You know, They, they could only be used in those smaller style, non-political cases where there wasn't much disagreement to begin with because they are of this voluntary nature. It isn't a mandatory corporation like what you're doing with the European Union, which is mandatory, like the European Arrest Warrant is a mandatory instrument that needs to be adopted. So the council that was subsequently created as an institution of the European community and then later the European Union uh, was an institution really of heads of states. So we don't have an institution of a voluntary cooperation of different representatives of the member states. No, this is the highest level of authority in all of the EU member states. So this not only has legally a strong backing of the state, no, this has politically the highest backing in every single one of the member states. So it has a different level of oomph, if you like. When they decide something, they really mean it. When they decide something, they want this to be implemented because it has the very highest political and legal backing in each of the member states. And I think that's what makes it so different. Now, why is there not more cooperation? Now, to a certain extent, there is an element of cooperation in the sense that the EU has appropriated all of the Council for Europe uh, conventions. And the way it's appropriated them is throughout the enlargement process, in particular from the 1990s onwards, it started making it a mandatory requirement for all of the new EU member states to adopt all of those conventions. So by doing that, they kind of started making it part of the legal key of all of the EU member states. They all had to adopt it. It was all like a standard um, minimum level. This is what we kind of uh, have as a minimum level before we start cooperating with you guys. And then we do the real stuff after you've done all of this. Then we do the real stuff, like the real strong cooperation and so on. And um, so in that sense, that already existed. Is there a possibility for cooperation that goes much further than that? Possibly not, because you're really dealing with organizations that are quite different in nature that are not easily going to cooperate very clearly because you're different levels of authority, different levels of political importance, um, and different levels of instruments that are even available in the institution. So in that sense, while the name is very similar, 
And that is unfortunate. I think they may have thought about this at the time. But I guess the Council of Europe had a first mover advantage. They were there before. Uh, <laughs> they didn't want to get rid of their name, obviously. Um, beyond that, um, they're actually quite different institutions. Right. And also, you know, like majority of the international students are non-native speakers. So when you have mm -hmm. Council of Europe and European Council in, in English oh, sense, so. you know, it's, it's, it's basically the same thing. So Christian, yeah. let's, let's, let's go to a different topic and that's the cooperation with non-EU countries. So mm -hmm. some, of, some of the students, they already asked me if there is any, let's say, counter-terrorism alliance uh, mm -hmm. where the EU is, is a leading member or, or member with, with, for instance, the USA, with uh, India, with, with different countries. So how we can connect the European legal framework for counter-terrorism to the international cooperation in this topic? Exactly. No, I think that's a fantastic question. It really leads us to maybe make a little bit of PR for our book, Canadian. Uh, in 2022 that we um, brought out then uh, on the EU as a global counterterrorism actor, um, co-authored with Dr. Alex McKenzie and Professor Sarah Leonard. It came out with Edward Elgar, and if people want to read it, they're very welcome to read it. It's actually open access, so people can read it online. So I, I invite everybody to read it. Now, this is an important question because the EU has really done a lot to establish those kind of relationships with third countries. Now, at the beginning, if you like, uh, the literature tended to neglect that a little bit. Uh, in the early years of the EU, counterterrorism was even described as the absent friend. Um, an early depiction that really stayed influential over a number of years uh, to give the perception it was a limited role in terms of the EU playing a relatively limited role in foreign security policy in general, and also then here in terms of counterterrorism, because it isn't a big military actor. And that is true, of course, the EU is not a big military actor, but actually in terms of counterterrorism, it's done quite a lot more. So what we do in the book really is that we look at the EU's framework here. We look at the process that the EU underwent, the collective securitization process to, in a sense, create a collective perception of terrorism as a security threat inside of the European Union, looking at that and linking it to this idea of global activeness. Once you are seeing it as a collective security threat, what are you going to do about it? How do you react globally, right? Um, we're then outlining the various institutions in the EU framework from the European Commission to the Council to the EU counterterrorism coordinator to um, the European Parliament, of course, the different agencies, Europol, Eurojust, the External Action Service increasingly, and the high rep and foreign security policy that is also involved. So we outline all of those things. And then we look at various case studies. So one of the case studies, for instance, is the transatlantic relationship. I'll go into that in more detail, but in a book, we then also look at a case study in terms of EU counterterrorism in South Asia, in particular when it comes to Afghanistan and Pakistan. And the EU actually was uh, quite importantly involved also there and also EU counterterrorism, and of course, Iraq and Syria, which was very important, especially when, when Daesh came up. Um, so we look at all of those kind of things. But let me go into a little bit more detail when it comes to uh, the United States, because the United States is really the model relationship. In a sense, it's the gold standard for any kind of uh, counterterrorism relationship that you might have between the EU and, and other partners. 
it started growing out of, of bilateral links, in fact, because a lot of the individual member states, they already had a number of different bilateral links that were already quite strong and, 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 and very well developed. For instance, United Kingdom had a close relationship with the Department for Homeland Security and the Home Office that already uh, started as part of the 1979 police working group on terrorism, where they would start to share operational knowledge, where they also linked it up to their common fight in terms of fighting drug trafficking. The United States in particular, of course, started drug trafficking um, very early on in the late 70s, early 90s to build networks to fight those drugs. And there was an internationalization within the US agencies like the FBI or the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA, that had agents stationed in Europe without operational power and as well um, secondment opportunities for, for Department of Justice personnel. There's similar things also with the US-Italian working groups where they were already working together quite strongly in terms of fighting the Italian mafia from the 70s onwards. The US-German relationship, uh, bilateral links between the US police and the Bundeskriminalamt in Germany with direct access to the US National Criminal Information Center and also with uh, links uh, that, the, that the FBI has with the BKA, the Bundeskriminalamt, with the BFV, the Federal Office for the Protection of the Constitution in Germany, and the BND, the Foreign Intelligence Agency of Germany. We have also the same in France, where we had um, links in terms of the historical um, cooperation with regards to Algeria and the terrorism was there in Algeria, the, the, the agencies, the Direction de la Surveillance du Territoire, DST, and the Direction Générale de la Sécurité Extérieure, the External Security Agency, they all have close links with their US counterparts. Same in the Netherlands. So what we see after 9-11 is a, is a kind of movement. The, the US builds on all of those links, and they continue those links, but they also see increasing the value of operating with the EU level. They see value with operating, for instance, with the institution, with the European Commission in particular, to develop a number of different initiatives. So what we see is, for instance, uh, they develop frameworks in judicial cooperation. They develop frameworks in criminal justice cooperation. And most significant, one, perhaps the EU-US Mutual Legal Assistance Treaty, signed in 2003, covering a range of legal issues, really the evidence in terms of sharing for criminal investigation, the streamlining of extradition. So it's not quite an instrument like the European arrest warrant, like a, a, like I introduced, but it is similar-ish in terms of nature, in the sense that except for cases of death penalty and so on, which which obviously the EU would not accept because of the European Convention on Human Rights and everything else, um, there is a similar process now in place also in the United States to hand over uh, terrorist suspects and also to, to, to get them handed over from the United States. Um, in terms of developing uh, central points of contact between the EU and US authorities, asking for information, for instance, bank accounts, like we are discussing, following the money, uh, all of those things are now in place between the EU and, and the United States. And also the US has developed a very close relationship with the different um, agencies in Europe. So for instance, has um, people seconded to Europol, um, people seconded to the various uh, agencies in Europe and, and, and a very close relationship that has started developing there. And is this initiative uh, also visible from other countries, for instance, the countries from Africa, from Asia, uh, maybe from the countries from the Central Asia as well? I'm just, I'm just asking because, you know, the initiative 
must always come from both sides to create some good model of cooperation. When there is initiative only from one side, there are some, you know, troubles during the process. So based on your practice of writings and articles, how would you evaluate the initiatives coming from different parts of the world towards the EU and from the EU towards different parts of the world? I mainly mean non-West or non-Western countries. Yes. I think none of the relationships is as strong as with the United States. I think that is something that we can say say very clearly. The United States relationship is, is by far the strongest. It's the most developed in legal terms and everything else. Now, with non-Western countries, there is initiatives. So within the framework of the European neighborhood policy, there were initiatives that were also taken with Southern European uh, neighborhood countries, with Eastern neighborhood countries. So there were a number of different initiatives in order to bring um, elements of counterterrorism cooperation. So some of the things, for instance, that the EU did was um, developing further banking standards in some of those certain neighborhood countries in order to um, fight against um, obviously corruption, but in particular then um, the use of banks in order to finance terrorism. So those um, standards that are by now global standards that the EU was very, very supportive of, of making them global standards, if you like, and, and FATF standards and, and, and OECD standards and all of those kind of things, they very much managed to um, have a relationship with the southern European countries in order to uh, raise their standards as well. Now, there are attempts made also to have much more closely linked relationship in other areas when it comes to policing, when it comes to criminal justice and so on. So, for instance, um, Israel has a working arrangement with Europol, so they are able to cooperate and, and, and so on. So there's that element. But... Um, a number of the southern neighborhood countries and also eastern neighborhood countries had a problem in terms of developing really strong legal instruments. And there were always, in a sense, the same problems. To a certain extent that you had democratic concerns, you had concerns when it comes to the criminal justice system of not being able to fully reciprocate um, the, 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 the kind of problems there. And you had differences in opinion also in the European Union. For instance, the European Commission was increasingly suggesting, well, but we need some of those countries, so we need to kind of work more closely with them. Um, but then there's also legal concerns because obviously in, in, in Europe we have a democratic legal framework where also judges and courts can get involved. And on occasions they would shut down some of those kind of initiatives where they're saying, well, we can't, for instance, hand over a suspect just like that to a particular set of neighborhood country. I don't want to mention any particular ones because I don't want to, in a sense, castigate one country in particular. But um, it's 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 more difficult to to create those very cast iron legal instruments when you're not dealing with a fully democratic, fully functioning legal framework in the same way as as we're dealing in Europe. But increasingly, certainly on the policing side, there's been a real need. So what you see is sometimes a combination of some EU-level initiatives where trying to cooperate more with, with those countries and that, um, whether that is in terms of coming together for policing missions, whether that is coming together for, for law enforcement and, and so on. But of course, developing legal instruments is still a different category. So legal instruments like a mutual legal assistance treaty, those ones, they don't exist yet. 
when when it comes to those countries it's more like the practical operation cooperation rather than really the the, the strong legal framework uh, that, that would be inherent in the eu us um, during my teaching uh, sometimes i face a very interesting question mm -hmm. and this is about the human rights in the european union Mm -hmm. And uh, there is also criticism coming to the EU for mm -hmm. having human rights in all areas. So, for instance, uh, I was asked why Europeans are dealing with a terrorist suspect for so long, why those people have human rights uh, as they committed terrorist acts, and, and how how EU wants to do it. So, so the question is how the EU legal framework balances between the human rights and counter-terrorism. Mm. In a sense, it's not entirely a balance. In a sense that the European Convention human rights applies to all EU laws, regardless of um, which aspect of EU law. We also have the European Charter of Human Rights, uh, of, of Fundamental Rights, sorry, the European Charter of Fundamental Rights that is inherent in the Lisbon Treaty and that has now legal force uh, with regards to all aspects of European law. And these are instruments that apply to any legislation, whether that is counterterrorism, whether that is anything else. So these are legal instruments that are enforced whether a particular government likes them or doesn't like them or partially likes them, they're always enforced. So this is something that as European countries decided in their collectivity over the decades to, to develop the instrument. Now you can be in favor of some of them, you can you can maybe criticize some of them, but they apply always. So how do you then balance that? That is a good question in the sense that you are trying to be as effective as you can be in your law enforcement. And you're trying to be as effective as you can be in your criminal justice system, all the while still respecting any of those kind of obligations that you have and that you have for anything that you do, regardless of what particular activity. Um, and in, their, in that sense, ultimately, the question isn't so much, do those terrorists have those human rights? Because the European legal system has defined any human being in Europe as those rights, regardless of what exactly they have done or haven't done. Um, and we will then pursue terrorists with our criminal justice tools, respecting all of those kind of rights, nonetheless, which then means sometimes we might find it more difficult perhaps because some things have to be like for instance the right of appeal or that you can't easily expel somebody maybe from your country that was something that in britain was very very unpopular why is the european convention on human rights and making it so hard for us to expel this person who's committed a crime or that person who's committed a crime and I think on individual cases you can have debates about that right is it right that this person should be remaining is maybe we're giving them too many rights and so on but in a sense in Europe that debate hasn't been had on an individual basis but it is a more on a principled basis where these are the kind of rights that we have in terms of our legal system in general and then the extension is that they apply in all cases now whether this will always remain the case we will see because obviously when we have a situation of war let's say like what we had in Ukraine there's obviously articles in many countries' constitution that suspend certain rights in case of war. So we will have to see whether 
uh, this remains like that should we be debating something much larger scale in terms of defense but but certainly on a smaller scale um terrorist kind of activity european countries haven't really said no we should suspend those rights yet i mean sometimes some rights are kind of circumvented a little bit so for instance you know privacy protections are sometimes nowadays circumvented through instruments that allow the law enforcement authorities to be able to monitor nefarious activity and i think most people would be in agreement that uh, monitoring nefarious activity is a positive thing um but you know there, there's always a debate and very often what happens is that you have a an incident and the incident raises new questions and when those new questions are raised maybe sometimes a new consensus emerges we might then say oh well you know in those kind of specific cases maybe not all of the rights need to be respected because we need to know when somebody is planning something and therefore uh, perhaps you should give law enforcement the, the, the potential to 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 monitor certain things the another criticism uh, for the eu is that EU produces so many agencies, institutions, and, and different bodies. And we already mentioned some of them. And, and there are two more that I would like to add to our discussion today. And that's the EU Counterterrorism Coordinator and the European Counterterrorism Center. And some students and some researchers from outside of EU, they asked me, so, so what's the point of producing more if you already have the Commission, the Council, the Europon, the Eurojust, and, and so many institutions. So, so the question is how the EU is able to manage all those institutions and, and what's the point of having those two, the dimension? Yes, I think uh, the European Parliament at some point asked that same question when it came to the agencies of the European Union. They were asking, isn't there not a proliferation of agencies? Do we still know everything that is still happening? And in our book, when we wrote that book on the EU as a global counterterrorism actor, we also made a point that there is now a very, very dense space of um, actors. And um, and it is slightly questionable whether all of those multiplications of actors necessarily always brings more efficiencies. Um, I think that's a fair question to be had, and certainly the European Parliament asked that question also when it came to agencies. Now, on some of the individual ones, um, like the EU Counterterrorism Coordinator, it's actually a very, very useful um, institution that is, in, in in a sense, not a separate institution either, because it's a it's a part of the Council. It, it came out of the Council Secretariat. Um, one of the long-standing EU Counterterrorism Coordinators, Mr. Gilles de Kerkhoff, he was a very, very experienced council official. And as a result of that, um, he really managed to give that role a lot of purpose, maybe partly because he knew the council extremely well and he was very well versed there. Uh, and maybe he was also a very specific case, being very energetic and dynamic and everything else. Um, but the same way as the European Counterterrorism Center that is also then ba based in another agency in Europol. Um, they're not totally separate institutions. Um, they are, in fact, um, if you like, specializations within a larger institution um, that exists. But I think the general point is a fair point to be thinking, well, we do have a, a very dense network of institutions and actors here. 
And is there a point when it becomes too dense, perhaps, and too many actors are actually creating inertia rather than driving actions because they might not all be going in the same direction? And I think that's a fair point to be to be asking. And I think there were sometimes elements within uh, the EU system where perhaps this was indeed the case. So, so that is something that we need to to always keep thinking about. Christian, we mentioned the legal documents, the regulations, the international corporations, institutions. So, so we covered most of the legal framework. But based on your research and studies, mm-hmm. is there anything missing at the moment? Or maybe there is something you would like to see in this legal framework for counterterrorism? Yes, I think there's a number of things that I think could very well make things more efficient. I mean, in the EU, as we know it, we've gone in the right direction in the sense that we've developed a lot of instruments. We've developed a lot of very useful instruments. And I think all of that is very, very helpful and useful. Nonetheless, we're also somehow stuck in some areas. So, for instance, I give you an example. Europol is clearly a supporting agency. It's a supporting agency that is primarily there to support national member states' authorities. So that objective is clear. And yet the objective is not 100% clear because it can also do some limited investigations on its own. And then a question becomes... But why is it only a supporting agency when it is the only agency that actually operates at the level of the European Union? There's no other agency that has the overview that Europol has, for instance. In a sense, why are we restricting our horizon to such an extent when we could do better? You know, uh, Europol could be doing more and could be doing better if we were allowing it to 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 do more if you like and i think that's where some of the things that need to be thought about i think when the vision first came for instance for europol the idea that helmut kohl had was to establish a kind of a european fbi so we saw that and um, professor john akipinti's first book was was uh, indeed going towards a european fbi that was kind of the idea which obviously he answered that no, because that wasn't in, indeed what the member states did, because even today, Europol is not Europe's FBI. But an element of that would be rather useful. An element of that would be rather useful. Um, also, when it comes to budgets, also when it comes to some other agencies, I think we're sometimes going in the right direction, but obviously going slowly in the right direction and perhaps sometimes having gone a little bit faster in the right direction might have might have helped to 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 stop certain uh, things and, and certainly europa has been useful for instance they stopped an attack on the on a christmas market in strasbourg they helped to stop an attack just last year um against the number of christmas markets during the christmas time period so all of these things are really quite crucial and perhaps need to to, to, to have more uh, competence and also uh, bigger budgets. I think uh, sometimes um, we're trying to get them to do a lot with relatively little. So, so that's something else to think about. But while saying that, I think what we said before in terms of the density of institutions, that's also a valid point, that we might 
then sometimes think, well, a little bit more simplicity could also remove some obstacles in the sense that perhaps some efficiency gains could be had by having clearer competences for, for different organizations. How do you see the radicalization in online environment in terms of combating, you know, this this phenomena? Because what I what I know and what I what I read almost every week, you know, is it's like emerging radicalization in European Union. More and more young people are getting to the special online websites, forums, special groups where there is either radical right uh, people or, or content or, or there is you know the terrorism contact I, I, had, I had an interview with the with the one guy and, and he said you know you, there are websites that you can find how to make a bomb how the things work and some of those websites they are registered in the west europe or or western world and and they mm -hmm. asked me you know like so why why don't you remove those websites or or is it not possible to do it of course, there is a dark net and, and other layers of internet, but mm. you know how how do you perceive this this very interesting topic? Because mm. you know, I, I think that we should do more in this area. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, I think we're still in our infancy in terms of dealing with the internet properly. I think there's a lot of radicalization uh, going on on the internet. I think the recent wars that we've had, uh, war. That Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, but also um, the war between Israel and Hamas in Gaza has led to a lot of hybrid warfare being fought on the internet. And use of conspiracies, the use of radicalization efforts, in particular youngsters with, with all sorts of nowadays the capabilities that you have to radicalize people with fake images actually completely constructed by AI that are not even actual real images but obviously with people with no capabilities to actually um, be able to distinguish a fake image from a from a real image um, makes this a very very difficult and dangerous space that needs to be very significantly regulated there needs to be real um, care being put into how to regulate those platforms yeah they don't like being regulated so the Twitters, the YouTubes, the everything else, Googles and whatever else, Facebooks, they don't like being regulated and I understand it from their perspective because for them it's money and they want to make money. Um, but from a security perspective and also from us caring about our children and everything else, we also uh, owe it in a sense to society to regulate properly to ensure that those kind of dangerous materials are not uh, too easily to be found there by children, for instance, who are then uh, being radicalized into all sorts of different directions. And also to, to make our societies more resilient, because what I say has implications in terms of terrorism, because it's being used for terrorist purposes, but it's not only being used for terrorist purposes, it's also being used for political purposes to influence elections, it's being used to, to kind of... Um, create uh, big disagreements within European societies um, and, and the broader political spectrum more generally. So this is a very important aspect that needs to be looked at uh, also in that particular way, uh, not only with regards to terrorism, but also within a kind of larger notion of, let's say, hybrid warfare that, that, that we're experiencing uh, as Europeans. 
The last question for today's interview, Christian. We might have some viewers who might be interested in writing dissertation or a research project or even a paper about the legal framework of the European Union in terms of counterterrorism. So which areas, which research areas would you recommend as, uh, we can say not under research, but maybe those areas requires, require more research and people can contribute also with different ideas, not only from the EU, but outside the EU as well. I think there's a number of areas that are under-researched. Obviously, we've seen a good body of research when it comes to the EU's legal instruments, a good body of research in terms of the EU's institutional development, increasing body of research, but perhaps slightly under-researched in terms of the foreign policy dimension of it. So all of those things have happened. But obviously, there's relatively little comparative research actually across different European countries. So this is something that is still lacking and would also be useful actually for practitioners in Brussels to have a much deeper understanding of the comparative legal frameworks between European countries. Um, this is particularly important in terms of further development of legal instruments in the future. So should there be further um, development of European legal instruments, having these early analysis, especially legal analysis, very useful for, for the EU institutions to be able to, to think about developing instruments in the future, because you need to understand where the loopholes in the law are. And very often you can only understand them when you have a proper uh, significant comparative analysis there. But there's also a lot more to do in terms of the international role of the European Union there. Like we obviously have increasingly some research when it comes to the hotspots, right? Like I was saying, even in our own work, we've looked at, you know, the United States, Afghanistan, Pakistan, uh, Iraq, and Syria, and so on, that uh, these are the obvious, if you like, candidates. But the EU is doing a lot more in, in other areas. It has a lot more partners around the world where it could be doing more. So I think a lot more can be done also with people also from outside of the European Union. My my example would be with with partners from across the globe, let's say, like India, like um, Africa, like Latin America, like Middle Eastern countries, like Israel, like, you know, there, there's a number of different possibilities there. Um, and and I think you could really contribute to, to, to learning also. So the EU is not always only the institution that needs to provide knowledge to others. I think it's also important to be humble at times, right? And say, look, you know, there's others that also have very, very significant expertise how to deal with certain kind of terrorist threats. Maybe there's elements that we can learn from from external countries where we could improve our own position by looking at their experience. I think that is also an area that perhaps hasn't been explored fully and sufficiently yet. I agree. And I, I would like to add one thing. When I was speaking with uh, some students and researchers from India and from Brazil, also Argentina, one of the points they made was that, uh, well, EU, 27 countries, national, supranational institutions for research. So what's the point of submitting a research proposal if there are so many experts, so many good universities and, and all that stuff? And my answer was, you know, but you never know. What's about if you have a good idea or some really decent research projects? So I would encourage people to submit the research projects and, and just don't don't think about having like too many uh, universities in Europe or, or too many experts. 
because you know how it how it works. Sometimes you have 50 experts, someone comes and have a completely different perspective that that basically makes things better. Christian, thank you very much for, for your time, remarks and insightful thoughts about this topic. Uh, I'm very happy that you found time for this because I know that you are very busy, which, uh, which all the viewers can see when they Google your name and uh, our activities on LinkedIn or publishing. So again, thank you very much for being on IO Thinker. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a great pleasure and a great honor to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you and see you later. See you.